Trevor and we are the Boo Crew. Welcome to episode 148. Here's a Boo Crew Fright Track. In 1990s TV miniseries, It, on the bonus features of the DVD, there's some commentary about how the actors and actresses said that Tim Curry's characterization of Pennywise was so creepy and realistic that everyone avoided him during the filming. This time around, you are joined by the singer and founder of the multi-platinum band Bush, Gavin Rossdale. They are celebrating the release of their incredible eighth album out now called The Kingdom. We'll talk all about it, the collaborations on this album from film composer Tyler Bates, who has a plethora of horror and genre titles to his name, including The Devil's Rejects, John Wick, and more. Plus, discuss Gavin's role acting opposite Keanu Reeves and Rachel Weisz in the amazingly fun horror film Constantine that is celebrating its 15-year anniversary. And a new movie he's in that'll be released soon that he stars alongside Bella Thorne and Paris Jackson. Gavin's a big horror fan himself. Find out his personal fave films and a whole lot more. He is absolutely hilarious and charming. Episode 148 starts now. Hey, this is Gavin from Bush. You are checking out the Boo Crew Podcast. The sadness is the emptiness. With shadows in the rain. She covered me in loneliness. Like flowers on a grave. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio is an astounding creator, musician, singer, lyricist, and actor who formed the band Bush. Their debut album, 16 Stone, released in 1994, was certified six times multi-platinum. They went on to become one of the most commercially successful rock bands of our time, selling over 20 million records around the world. They went on to release and expand their legacy over six more albums, earned 18 consecutive top 40 hit singles on the modern rock and mainstream rock charts in the U.S. and Canada. Six of those went to number one songs embedded in your lifeblood, like Come Down, Glycerin, Machine Head, Everything Zen, and more. They are a band who continue to innovate, experiment, and evolve in everything they've ever done. Never once to rest on their laurels, seemingly propelled by a centrifugal force to do their own thing before anyone else ever catches up. It makes them thrilling to watch and the experience of listening to their albums all the more intimate and immersive. They have just released their much anticipated eighth outing called The Kingdom. Here with us to celebrate it, it's our esteemed honor to welcome Mr. Gavin Rossdale. Yeah! Yeah. Oh, Can you come with me everywhere? <laughs> just, when I walk into a room, I just want you to say all that stuff. Just like, you know, going to pick up my takeout food somewhere. You're like, listen, guys, you need to step it up. Make sure there's extra hot sauce. This guy deserves all the hot sauce you got. Hear ye, hear ye. First of all, congratulations on this album. It is an absolute yes. masterpiece. We can't wait to get all into it. But before we get into this, as a horror podcast, we wanted to highlight the fact that not only have you played roles on film and TV as an actor, but you appeared in the tremendous 2005 horror film, Constantine. 
opposite Keanu Reeves, Rachel Weisz, and Shia LaBeouf. And it's a film that's being rediscovered as recently as a few weeks ago and at Comic-Con, actually, this year as being recognized for the slow burn kind of film noir that it, that it really was. And it was the first feature film done by Francis Lawrence, who was known at that time for his amazing music videos. It's dripping with style. First of all, are you a fan of horror films at all? Yeah, I was with someone for a long time who didn't like them. So when I was liberated from that situation, I found myself delving back into it more. I mean, it you know, begins back in the day, like when you're a kid and you sneak a version of The Exorcist or like Carrie. I love those so much. So Midsummer, you know, I love that, that movie. I saw, uh, you know, there's a few things out that, um, that I really want that I, I do. Yeah, I like them, of course. I mean, more so than the gore. Like I was watching it the other day with one of my kids. He's seven. No, no, the old one. <laughs> and uh, and uh, that was like the gore stuff is like, I, I, okay, but, but the horror where you're truly scared is I do, I do like that. I do like it. Do you remember the first horror movie you saw? Well, The Exorcist. Like that, that with the head turns around and the green, the bile comes out of the mouth. Like that. I saw that and I saw, I saw the. Um, the, I once I've been having terrible phobia my whole life of birds because I saw the birds, the Alfred Hitchcock one, where all the birds sit on the fence. And, you know, I don't know how I got to see it. Like some old VHS lying, lying around my house, no parental su- supervision, so I could watch anything that was there. And uh, watching that, that was it. Like I, I don't care. Like I mean, maybe not a pit bull. Okay, I'm scared. Of, you know, pit bulls I'm wary of, but generally dogs I'm pretty good with. A wild horse and like that, no problem. But a flapping little bird, it's, I just don't need it in my life. <laughs> it's not, I don't need it. I don't need it. I don't, I think annoying. They, like sometimes they, you know, they get uh, in my house. One idiotic bird will get in and you know, flying around like an idiot, is bashing into the, all the walls, and I'm like, oh god. And there's no one there to help it's me. The I'm worst. Like, I got a man up. <laughs> yeah. It's a freaking bird the size of my hand. I mean, I've I've eaten a bigger steak, but it's just like, still, is that, is that unknown things? So I have to get the towel, just smother it, then wrap it up and chuck it out. But yeah, so, so yeah, that, that's my beginning. But I do, I, I like to be scared. You know, it's good. It's a good emotion. Leo, you had a question about The Exorcist. Yeah, I was wondering because I always hear these stories that that movie was banned for a number of years in the UK. Was it a, a certain version that you watched? Maybe a, a super edited version or, a, or like a, a illegal version, maybe perhaps? I think that you sound way too uh, expert in the field. <laughs> I just saw a version. I, didn't, I have no context of the other versions. I saw the one that terrified me. And like, you know, I always had a problem with, the, you know, the kind of that whole religious thing. They always look so, you know, like, you know, when you're a kid and you have to go to church when you're in england you got to do that in the morning before you go to school and like those guys and they got the dresses on and the dog collar they all like weathered faces and they're all a bit scary snaggled teeth it's a little scary and then i saw them in the exercise i was like that was it i was like that is not for me i like a good scare you know i like a good scare the music of bush has actually been featured in the soundtracks for a lot of horror films there's yeah, two yeah, of them on the yeah. fear soundtrack there's the crow there's american world from paris it's buffy the vampire slayer what do you think it is about horror and rock that makes it go hand in hand yeah I mean, it's just the, the adrenaline of you know they i'm a got a scary sort of adrenalized sound i don't i don't know i'm always happy a, a good sync is a wonderful thing and in fact we just had talking of constantine because I just did the sync for Bullet Holes was in the John Wick, which is not necessarily a horror genre, but that's a fun 
Uh, that's a fun movie, but but different show. I know you probably got a different backdrop for that movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll actually we'll actually talk about that when we get into the album a little later as well. Because yeah, that song is uh, yeah phenomenal and teaming up with Tyler Bates, who's got an extensive genre and horror background as well. There's there's a lot to yeah. talk about there. He has. He's got scary posters up the wall to his studio. It's all all about that stuff. Oh, that's so Hills fun. Have eyes. Everything has eyes. <laughs> Everybody's watching you. Let's go back to yeah. uh, Constantine for a second. So you played that demon half-breed Balthazar. So what was the story about how you ended up getting that role? It was just, uh, you know, it was funny because I was, I was uh, getting into acting then and enjoying it. And I went to read. And it's, it's so strange when you go try out for a movie. You know, you do your best and you try and get in the role and you work hard at it. And the truth is, is that there's a sort of a physicality that they just already want. And you either walk in and click into that part, like a, like in the right, like the perfect pair of shoes, or you're just not right for the part. And I guess for that, I, I just did something right. And I remember because Akiva who wrote it, Akiva Goldsman, um, who spruced it up, he called my manager was like, that's, you know, that's when I wrote the part. I was, that was Gavin said it, how I imagined it. So I was like, I didn't know what I was doing. I was like, now I did go to that set thinking, uh, it's a $100 million movie. And I was driving the set thinking, I am the least experienced person on this whole set. The janitor has way more experience than me. The guy making the sandwiches, he's making sandwiches for another side. I am fun. So I just did my poker face, you know, poker face thing. But it's always been difficult because all the grips and everyone in the movie would be saying, when's the next Bush record? What are you doing? And I felt really guilty. It always made me feel bad about going to work doing that. But I did four hours of um, makeup every morning to put that the burnt crazy face on. Oh yeah. During the fight scene. My call time was like 3am to get done. And then 7am I'd start working, shooting, but otherwise I'd sit there and they, you know, I would have, I would have kept it on for the, like the two weeks I shot. I mean, I, it's fine. For, I mean, wake up looking terrible, but I look terrible now. Okay. <laughs> what was your experience like working with the great Stan Winston studios who did all the work on you for this? I remember walking in and, and, uh, seeing, um, just all the, you know, the heads, the weird, the zombies, Edward Scissorhands, uh, everything that he did. And each, each, it's all like, you know, cool, you know, tattooed artists working on like strange. I mean, you guys would love it. You, you wouldn't want to leave there. You'd be like, oh my God, can we borrow this for our studio? <laughs> it sounds amazing. Like weird, gory stuff. Yeah, you'll love it. You'd be like, oh my God, this is the greatest. You had uh, some very great fight scenes with Keanu Reeves that resulted in some incredible effects. How much of your own stunts did you perform? I think we did. What the one interesting side fact about that is that Chad Stahelski, he was his stunt coordinator, Keanu. So he directed us on that. And then, of course, he went on to direct all the, the first two John Wicks. And now I think three John Wicks. And now he's producing the, the next one. So we just worked hard on that. And it was around the time when The Matrix had been out. And I was so impressed by Keanu's. All those fight scenes were like two weeks long on the matrix. So it was just, I just remember being really involved and just, you know, with a, the first movie I, I did was called game of their lives. And it was a soccer movie. I played a soccer player. And it was hilarious because it was the first experience I've had on movie set. And it was this ensemble cast. Right. And, um, and so they had the director, David was, um, had given over the reins of the technical side to Eric Winalda, who was his soccer player. So Eric is a great guy, but he's a very confident man. And so he kept on thinking, he kind of, you know, thinking that because he got the, 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 uh, the, the play, the match play uh, down, 
for the guys, for us to, you know, these set plays, that he really was the the better director in the in this set. So there's a real tension between him and David Anspore. And like, and then with uh then Wes Bentley, who's this amazing actor, he was having a fallout with Eric. And I remember like they were squabbling and at one point, uh, Eric took the ball and Wes walked around. Now, he's the star of the movie, Wes Bentley. You know, he's a great movie star. And he literally threw the ball at the back of his head. And I was like, oh, my God, this is like, this is crazy. So I always vowed to be like, and when I in the makeup chair, everyone was like, it's terrifying. You don't want to leave that room because they are slicing and dicing you, you know. So I was like, whenever you work on a movie set, just like show up, know your lines, don't say nothing to no one. So I really, I learned because I just... This, this ensemble cast was like these different factions. Everyone's annoyed at everyone else. It was brilliant. They should have been filming that. It's better than the movie. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing. So when I did, when I went to Constantine, you know, I just was like, I learned a really good lesson there. You know, you're, you're a small cog in a really big wheel and some wheels are bigger. Some cogs are bigger. You know, Keanu's the star or Wes was the star. And we just like, just, you just don't upset the apple car. You just do your job. Don't piss anyone off and be cool. That's it, you know. So I made sure that I never, even though I wanted to scream my head off for two weeks straight of like four hours of prosthetic makeup, I'd be like, they got to come in here. They get none of the glory. Like no one's asking them about that now, you know, but I still get asked about it. So it was a really good lesson. Um, I love that experience. Jaiman Huntsu as well. He's an incredible actor. And I, I love that process of acting. I just done a movie with this woman, a Janelle girl, Janelle Shirtcliffe, who's an amazing photographer. It's called Habit. And that's about um, Paris Jackson's playing Jesus. So there's already like 300,000 people signatures against her playing Jesus, which is brilliant. It's like amazing. Great promo. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Keep it coming. Yeah, we're terrible people. Hus, 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 hus. <laughs> Satan's here. And, uh, and, uh, and but Bella Thorne is obsessed uh, sexually with Jesus. So they thought they were upset about Paris. Wait till they find out what the movie is. Like Bella Thorne is just like absolutely all about her love for Jesus. And I and I don't mean her chaste love for Jesus. So. <laughs> That's <laughs> outstanding. Bella's awesome. Oh, yeah. I love her too. Yeah. Yeah, it was awful. I had to, I had to do a love scene with her. It was terrible. I feel really bad for you. Yeah. <laughs> I hate my job. Sometimes you got to suck it up, literally. As far as Constantine goes, did you keep anything from the production, like the pinstripe suit, the coin? You know, funny thing. I think they kept the suits in case for danger of a sequel. And when I when I saw Keanu in um, uh, New York when I went to the premiere of John Wick, I was like, dude, wait, there's all these terrible sequels being made how's it not a constantine sequel i want to be risen from the dead like a genie and uh he said i think it didn't make enough money so it's a bit uh, maybe it's like this slow burn you talk about maybe it's going to come back there's going to be this uh desire you know i think this keanu could still do it i'm ready and uh it'd be, it'd be wonderful to resurrect that character did you have to learn that fucking coin trick yes you, you actually yes. did that so it's not a double oh, for three four months I had a specific coin, three or four months. I did it like every day, all day long, whatever I was doing. And I get it really down. But the first scene they gave me was in the stairwell. And I'm like, listen, I learned how to do that shit, but I, I can't fight gravity. Yeah. You can't have me literally aiming downwards. I got to be, so I, I could do it. I mean, I probably could still do it now because I think it's a bit like a bike once you've got that, that thing, but it, it was a specific size. So I can't just do it. It's bigger than a quarter and heavier than a quarter. You know, it's like some hippie rhinestone. I could probably get it from some cosmic shop somewhere. But I think I'd be able to, it would take a, you know, a few days, I'd get it right back. 
It's one of those brilliantly useless tricks. You, I, right. can probably do better, you know? <laughs> I can't remember most of my songs, but I can remember how to do it at the point. I'm always like, what's that chord? I always ask say to my, ba- my bass player, I say, what's that chord? I wrote this one, but so many songs. That said, do you believe in angels, demons, and the paranormal yourself? Negative. I do believe in the, in the universe has an energy in it, an innate energy and a synchronicity. I do believe that, and I believe in sort of energies between people, but I don't know if that, if that somehow is a levitated concept and angels and demons. I think that um, it's beautiful to have, to follow like William Blake and look at the sort of artwork like that, Hieronymus Bosch, you know, I love all that. But in terms of actually the reality of it, I have to say, um, I, if, I feel like there's enough on earth, on our plate, that's full of wonder that I, I don't find myself, you know, lamenting to, when I was a kid, I used to be sort of, uh, I'd hear about murderers on the news at 10 and I'd, I'd be like going, uh, I'd forgive them cause I'd be on my own at my house at like nine years old. I'd be like, I wouldn't be mad at them. I know they didn't mean it. I didn't know if, you know, people would get me. I did used to have terrible nightmares when I was a kid, but I, I, I found my way out of that. I sang my way out of it. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Well, let's nice. let's get into the new album. So, The Kingdom. So, it's sonically so heavy, but it's still so rich in that thing that you do like no one else does, which is weaponizing that attack and giving it so much resolution and weight with these beautiful, unconventional melodies. This is something unforgettable you've done through your catalog, like Swallowed and The Chemicals Between Us. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's fun. I mean, I see, you know, it's so challenging to sing. Like when you're singing on riffs, as I wanted to on this record, you know, so you're generally singing around one note. So finding the melody is sort of unlocking the mystery of it. And it's, it's kind of challenging. But when you get it, it's really beautiful how you can, you can weave it. You know, definitely when I first began was a songwriter. So I just sort of managed to get one note. I basically changed note every like, three verses or something. I wasn't very good at it, but I, I found a way to get the melodies going. And uh, that's what I really like. I like that plaintive. I like that m- mixture of, I like it super heavy, but then I, I, but I, I'm not a big fan of, um, I like metal, metal music, but sometimes when they're a bit caricaturist or like shouty, it's not my kind of thing. Like I still love the great singers. I like people that sing, you know, cause then it's plaintive and you're sort of, you know, it's complaining with melody. You know, I like that. The album really ends up crawling inside your conscience as well and emphasizes kind of what we all go through in our daily lives as part of the human experience. Things like overcoming struggle and going against the odds and, and feeling powerless at times. And this album kind of offers to be our anthem, to be something empowering. It was wild how it sort of all fell into place. You know, for me, I'm just trying to be as honest as I can in the lyrics as, as you know, I don't necessarily get like a writer's block, but I'm just always wanted to be like, if you can be as a writer, you know, you can be as honest with what you're doing. I think there's more chance that people connect to it because they just relate to it and appropriate it to their struggle, their life. And, you know, as you say, you know, I don't do it. I don't do like doom and gloom, but I do uh, specialize my, my, they say you could kind of write one song your whole life, you know, just different versions of the same song. It's that thing that I, I find it really intriguing how some days it's just really uphill. And then other days you wake up and it's really downhill and you're like, 
wow, why? What, what was wrong with yesterday? Yesterday was so crappy. And I was like, why did I feel like the world was ending? And what am I going to do? And I'm mad at everyone, but I'm not mainly mad at myself. And I don't know what's happening. And then you wake up the next day and you're like, I love this coffee. This is amazing. It's the best coffee ever. Look at that morning. Look at the sky. And suddenly you find yourself. So I love delving into those, the, the way of like diving into like the fish tank of life, you know, and sort of swimming around and pulling yourself up through different wreckages. Because I think that everyone, you know, there's that lovely phrase, that, that lovely idea of um, you never know what someone else is going through. Everyone has their struggle. And as soon as you sit down and take the time to ask someone about something, they're going to tell you some terrible story of what they're going through, some terrible thing they've, they've managed to overcome. And uh, I, I endlessly fascinated with the ability for humans to kind of bounce back. And that's why I think it's really important to be discussing, you know, we're seeing a lot about mental health since COVID, you know, um, I know a number of people really close to me who've been suffering from uh, bipolarity, you know, and uh, it's so strange how it used to be such a taboo subject. And there were so many suicides, but no one really delved into it, discussed it so much. But now it seems to be that the people are trying to just be better as a whole and, and uh, address those things. You know, I think that having those terrible uh, public figure suicides you know chris cornell or chester certainly in the music world has opened people up to being more open about mental struggle when i've based my entire career on mental struggles not to the extent where i would commit suicide because i don't have the various cocktail of drugs or the various cocktail of psychology to to lead me to that terrible solution which isn't a solution you know but i find it endlessly fascinating and, and I, I love it when we hear people surviving and struggling, uh, rising up against the odds. You know, it just makes for such a beautiful, uh, powerful story. The Boo Crew will be right back. Two Alfred Hitchcock thrillers for the price of one. Alfred Hitchcock's Marnie, starring Sean Connery, the screen's most exciting star, and Tippi Hedren. Plus, Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, starring Rod Taylor, Jessica Tandy, Suzanne Plachette, and Tippi Hedren. The Birds could be the most terrifying picture I've ever made. Two Hitchcock thrillers for the price of one. Marnie and The Birds, both in Technicolor. And what a crazy time for this album to come out with, you know, the messages that we're talking about amplified so much during these times, especially in terms of mental health and and just being able to hold it together through struggles that no one else has really faced before. People have really been, um, you know, if they haven't got sick and died, which a lot of people have, obviously, 150,000 in America, they've lost their jobs. They, you know, they found out that their partner is, is no one who they thought it was. I hope you, you guys look good, by the way. So far, Fantastic. so far, so it. good. Thank you. That's wonderful. <laughs> that, that's, the, that's the ultimate. COVID was the test for everyone. And um, I guess a lot of people haven't managed to uh, make it through. And there's been terrible, you know, I think it's beautiful. Rihanna gave money to uh, women who were subjected to um, domestic abuse, violence, because they're l- cooped up. Money's running out, opportunities running out. And it's just, it's just a recipe for disaster. And if you haven't got a solid foundation, it's really challenging. And, and um, so think, singing about those things and 
being able to sing about them and then talk about them in his interviews, it's, it's really good because it just make, takes the pressure off of people feeling so alone. And that's what I, that's what I think I've always somehow managed to do, uh, no matter what anyone's ever said about our band and whatever we've gone through. I know on a daily basis, people come up to me and I just seem to attract lonely poets, you know, lonely poets. They come up to me and they just, they get so much salvation and sanctity from, from the records. And, you know, it, it's such a beautiful thing because, you know, if you paint a, a picture, you know, it goes into one usually rich person's house. You don't know what's happening there or a museum, but, you know, you make a song and it just, it goes to millions of people. It belongs to everyone and it's their own. It's not, I write a song, uh, you say swallowed, which was, that was when I was, had this amazing ride up into this uh, stratospheric success after years of struggle, years of rejection, years of failure. Basically I just lived on a diet of failure and hope. That's what, that was my, that was my breakfast sandwich every day and failing but I got hope and now I'm going to put mayonnaise on it, you know? And uh, that was my, that was my jam. And uh, I think people have related to that. I, you know, I, I hear it every day. I hear it every day and I love it. I never get old, never get tired of it. I don't have any airs and graces. People that meet me on the street, in a restaurant, wherever, wherever. I always, you know, I don't, I, I'm so embarrassed if I'm with someone. I've been with some famous people who won't do pictures or won't sign things. I'm always like, you're a dick and now they're going to hate you forever. Right? You know, it's so easy to just be gracious. Cause I think it takes a lot of courage for people to come up and, and talk to you and say, Hey, and what an abuse of that courage to just shoot them down. You know, terrible. And I was with someone recently, he's super famous, super famous. And I was so embarrassed. It's like one guy was coming up and wanted to get pictures with us. Cause we were at this charity event we're doing for women who were overcoming uh, drug addiction. So I was like, dude, you got to put yourself out there a little more. That's why we're here. We're puppets for the, for the charity. So someone comes up and he's like, he said, can, do you mind if I finish like that? I was just like, it was like being embarrassed by your mum. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't say that. Like this poor dude. And like, oh, it, was, it just traumatizes me. I was traumatized by it. It's so easy to be gracious. It really takes nothing. This new album is fantastic, so congratulations, man. And uh, some of my favorite tracks on the year are uh, Ghost in the Machine and Bullet Holes. I was curious, what were some of your favorite songs to write and record on this album? Well, uh, it's fun because um, Ghost in the Machine was the first song I wrote with Tyler. And what happened is that um, I, I didn't really want to write with Tyler. I don't think he really wanted to write with me. I was used to writing my songs. And my manager, Peter Katzis, was like, no, listen, you should maybe just for a movie, see how it goes. And so we went for like two lunches together and it, I was basically, I was being auditioned. I don't know. I was like having lunch with him, but we sort of got along really good. And so I went to a studio and the first thing he did um, is he, to break the ice, um, he said, Hey, I've got this great pedal called a depressor. I was like, Oh, that sounds like I something I'd like. And he picked it up and he goes, yeah, it's really cool. Does this right. And he starts playing this riff. So I just took out my phone and I recorded that riff. I liked it, recorded it. Right. So then we're chatting and then he goes, oh, listen, so I didn't know what you wanted to do and do you want to we'll jam together? But like, I got this couple of ideas down. So I was already a bit resistant at that point. My ego was being resistant. You know, my ego was like, I don't know if I need to write with someone. And he was probably like, I don't know if I need to write with this dude. I'm busy. You know, I've got 10 movies. So he played me three pieces of music that he had. And I was like, thinking to myself, well, you know, 
I, I can't do that, you know. So I was, why am I here? I don't know. Yeah, they're all right. I was like, yeah, it's pretty cool. I like that. I said, but I tell you what I really like. And then I played in the riff he just did. I was like, that I really like. Because then I played him some of the music that I've been doing. It was all detuned or like low metal tuning, C and B. And uh, he goes, oh, wow, because you're doing that. I was like, yeah. So, so when we played that riff, and then we just, he played that riff, and then we began to jam. And I said, well, in my life, I would, I would go to here to sing. So it was a re- that's how it began. And uh, that kind of set the standard between us. And he only ever has like two and a half hours because he's obviously not so busy now because of uh, COVID has been, uh, uh, has kind of put his, his dad's film scoring is on slightly on hold. So, but at that point, he was literally doing three TV shows and two two movies and a score for Cirque du Soleil. So he'd say, "Could you come on Wednesday at two? So I was thinking, you know, sessions where you write with people. I was like, "Okay, I'll see you guys in two days. I'll be back to the studio. I'm going in, right?" So I go in at two, and he's like, at three forty-eight, he's like, "Okay, so I think I've got a real sense of what you really like, and let me just do this." And I was like, "I'm out of here, okay." So I went to back to my house and my studio, and I just worked on it a bit and he did it. And then we, when we, so everything we did in these two hour, three hour bursts, and I, I would take the time to finish the words and do the, my melodies, my stuff outside of the, his studio. So it took a little bit uh, more time, but everything was always so fun and so good that it just took far too quick. I'd be like, Oh man, did I, I didn't, I didn't want to solve that riddle just yet. I was having too much fun, like wandering around my kitchen, singing to these like riffs. And that's always a sign of that you're on the right page when it goes real quick. I've had slow songs to write for sure, but generally the ones that, you know, happen just, they just, you just, you basically get out of the way of yourself. You know, it's like cooking a great dish. You basically get great ingredients and try and just keep out of the way. Don't fuck it up. Yeah. Well, what's speaking of that, what about, there's this moment on the album that's kind of like a little island. It's uh, a song called Undone, which is a stunning ballad. Tell us about Conceit. Was that one of those ones that, came out like that well that was a weird one because um my i was super into this heavy writing and so i had a lot of different uh heavy songs and uh, my manager's like listen you want to just what about you just do one one ballad i was like i was not going to do ballads because we got all these songs and i got lots of ballads off other records and i was being a brat you know i was like i don't know you know so then i but it was kind of fun to sit down and i find them actually easier to write uh, the slow songs, the navel gazing songs, you know, I find them easier. And um, I sat down on a Sunday and I wrote that song. And then I went and recorded it on the Monday. I've never done such a fast turnaround. And uh, so I had a real nice feel to it. And then Chris came in and played on that nice line. And Corey, our bass player, was recording him. So Chris came up with that beautiful da da da. And then Corey was like, what about resolving it? Da da. So there's a really nice collaboration between those two and on my song. And I was like, just bouncing up and down. I was so moved. I was like, oh, I love this. And Chris was like, I said, thank you so much. And he goes, dude, you wrote the song. I said, I know, but this is such a great touch. You put a perfect touch on it. So it was really, I think the whole thing about this record, what was really fun is that we, it just got the best out of everyone. You know, the band really rose up to it. And, you know, the drummer's incredible. Corey's incredible. Nick is the drummer. So it, it just, it's fun when you, when everyone's pulling their weight, it just makes you, you know, go get better all the time. And, and you're not, you're not, you're not having to do anything, but just like keep up and, and try and, you know, 
we're all male competitive idiots. So we're like, if someone does something great, we want also want to do something great. You know, we're foolish like that. You know. Another thing about the album and, and just about the music of Bush in general is it, it's very cinematic. And, and here you have the, the extreme polarities of that. And is that an intent with you in the music or is that just a byproduct of how you naturally what write? Is there anything that informs those decisions? That Yeah, I just, I'm just crazy about atmosphere and wide sounding records. And, and, you know, I always wanted to be. I mean, I think I love I love film music so much that even if I do these heavier records i still want that wide wide sound i don't like abrasive sounds you know i don't like if you turn it up you can't that it gets really harsh i like it really smooth and powerful and um yeah i can't help it like i love brian eno he's one of my favorites so all of that scoring stuff john williams any great score gabriel yared i just love all those guys that just just take your breath away with um, music in movies because it's such an integral part, you know, of making, of elevating a, a scene. It, it, music is so powerful, you know, so powerful. Would you ever want to score a movie or a horror movie? Is that something you'd want to do? Yeah, you know, I did, I did, um, I did this TV show called um, Undercover High for A&E. And I wrote this song called The Future of America for it. It's on A&E. It was like super legit. Like they loved it. They, they loved me doing it. They were so excited. I met them. And then they gave me a whole list of what I could work on. And I had a terrible manager at the time. And I'm not sure he didn't like just burn every bridge towards that A&E oh, challenge. Because no. I, I keep going, why? Like I wrote this one for Robert Kraft for Fox a song for a TV show. And he said, you know, I've never come in 60 songwriters. This was on my solo record in 2008. And he said, I've never commissioned someone to write a song on a Friday and on a Wednesday, they give me a hit song. And, and so we did that. And I was with Jimmy Ivey and then it was going to be the single. And then they went for the ballad and that was a big hit, but I felt like I was going to be Richard Marks or something. I was like, why the ballad now? And, um, they took away my sex, you know, and they just gave me my sad. I was like, I didn't want the sad right off the bat, you know? And, uh, and so Robert Kraft, who's this guy, he's a very powerful man. He, um, was so happy, but they never commissioned me again. I don't know what happened because I was like, I think I did pretty good for you. You know, why wouldn't you just say, Hey, let's go, let's go to that well one more time. That's a pretty good well made, made his life easy. Like on the Friday, when I sent it on the Wednesday, I remember he kept on saying, man, Good news. They love it. It's going upstairs. And I, I get these like 12 emails. I was like, how big is this building? Where am I getting to? <laughs> and literally by the, by the Monday, by the Sunday, it literally was going to the head of decisions at Fox. And so on the Monday, they were like, this is the song. Beautiful. And then Jimmy Iovine fell in love with it. And he had um, Carlos Alomar's wife come in and sing uh, on it at my studio with Jimmy who hadn't been in a studio since like rattle and hum. So it was all exciting. It was so fun. And then they went for the other song. I was like, okay. And then, um, then that was that. And that a big hit with that song, but it was, it was not, I didn't, it didn't lead to further things, but I, I get really inspired by, uh, to answer your question. I'm like, normally I write just blank, you know, blank, a uh, bit of screen where, and uh, so to be commissioned to do stuff, to picture, to see something and figure out how to elevate it. That was really fun. You know, I did a short film for an artist called Sebastian Horsley 
uh, edited this movie and he got crucified in the Philippines. And it's, it's, it's online, it's called it's, uh, the, the Crucifixion. And um, that was incredible to do. And I did that to him literally being crucified in the Philippines um, on, a, on a cross. We did this part of their whole Easter thing. And he did it because he wanted to paint crucifixions. So he wanted to paint from the perspective of being on the cross, which I thought was amazing. Unfortunately, he was a major drug addict. He was a great friend of mine, major drug addict. He ended up like ODing and dying. But we had a great show where Dennis Morris, who's famous for all the Sex Pistols and uh, Bob Marley pictures that you would know of in your life. He's a phenomenal um, uh, photographer and a really great friend of mine. He did the pictures. Sebastian did the, the paintings, and my film was on a loop in this art gallery in the dungeons somewhere in, in uh, Tower Bridge in London. So that was a really fun experience. That was a great fun experience, like an intellectual enterprise because it was for no reason. There was no commercial gain. I want to yeah, wow. talk about the uh, video for Flowers on a Grave. It has the band performing in this house. It looks like one take. Is that what we're seeing? Yeah, yeah, it's one take. Oh my oh, gosh! So you oh, interact wow. like people are walking in while you're singing. There's a nurse. Man, when, when they said to me, my the director we always work with, Jesse Davies, he's amazing. When he said to me, he found this house. I said, let's do it at a house party. You know, let's do this thing. I need dancers, magicians, crazy people. Let's get some nurses in there. Then that's the brief. And then he was like, okay, he said, I found the house. I think we can do it in one take, which my brain, the lazy side of my brain was like, brilliant, I'll be out in about two hours. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And we had got there and we rehearsed from like six until 10.30, rehearsing and then shot from 11 until four. And he's never told me to this day whether the take that we kept was at 1 a.m. We just <laughs> right. fucking had no need to do the one till four. I, don't, I maybe don't want to know about it. You know, I don't want to know about it. Was that house in West Adams by any chance? It was in Encino. Oh, like, wow. Wow. Interesting. wow. Interesting. And it was like, wow. it was weird because it was in um, a gated community. Yeah. For, uh, you know, super fancy homes. And then they had this one home that was literally, they had used it for a Halloween. It was just destroyed. Destroyed. I mean, like it was destroyed. It was so sad. Um, this family home. And I just was, it was kind of creepy, kind of weird. You know, one time I should tell you on this podcast, I did, um, when my first band I was in Midnight, when I was very um, young and very as driven as I am now, and I got us to play at uh, London Dungeons, which is this super scary, uh, you know, all like gory stuff, all the people that got murdered and all the people that died in medieval pain and hung, drawn and quartered and all that. And I remember going to um, the sound check of that. So in the day, so I'd never been in those places on my own. So when you wander through those places on your own, it was like so scary. We did a show there. It was brilliant. I mean, of course, they would never do that now, health and safety and stuff. But I somehow, I don't know how we managed to convince people to let some terrible band have like a thousand people come in and like play this speaking a couple a couple of weeks ago you did something really interesting that i haven't seen anyone do is you did an intimate live performance performing these massive arena style songs from the kingdom for yeah. a virtual audience yeah that was fun it's like doing a tv show yeah we well i think it's been up to i mean it's up to three hundred thousand, three thousand, um three hundred thousand people watched it so it's fun you know Note to self, charge them next time. Charge them next time. <laughs> right, yeah, 
saying. Right. <laughs> Our business manager's recovering well. He's just, it's just, the business manager, just heart palpitations, nothing serious, just arrhythmia <laughs> on his heart. Yeah. Poor guy. You did it for what? We did it for the love of our people. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no! Two <laughs> dollars, we would have like, made a few quid, you know, a few sandwiches. But no, we did it for free. So we're looking into doing some other, some other way, and just charging it a little bit now, just to kind of keep us in sandwiches, you know. Right. Well, yeah, I'm curious as far as, you know, dealing with the situation with the global pandemic and being able to spread the message of the album. Is it is there more videos that you're able to do in a socially distanced manner? Is there more like you're saying more opportunities to do these intimate shows and virtual performances and things in the tank on the way? Yeah, we we are looking at that. I'm actually shooting a video today. Oh, wow. With someone, which is but that's something completely off piece and a whole different thing. That it's for a charity for Music Cares this weekend. So whoever's doing Music Cares, um, and they originally, yeah, it's with a, it's just a really good thing. I, I, I can't say yet. Yeah, it's a really good surprise. And I was like, so if I do the video for it, which is we're totally doing, I, we're free to play this next week. So I'm doing something. It's, it's the opposite of heavy metal, put it like that. But it's very, very beautiful. And it's much more like Undone. But it's this one thing that I'm doing. And, uh, so I'm excited to do that today. Very cool. Oh, well, you're nice. As we wrap up here, um, I wanted to mention the three of us have a major history. We all met at a radio station in L.A. called uh, K-Rock. And oh, yes. we've seen many monumental Bush performances over the years at different K-Rock events. And and, and uh, that's been a, a big part. You've been a massive part of that radio station. I'm curious in terms of these days and the way people consume media and and music, does traditional radio play have the same impact that it once did? And what does, what does terrestrial radio kind of mean to an artist moving forward now? Well, as we, as flowers on a grave gets, breaks the top 10, hits the top 10 today, we're like, it's massive. You know, it's like all award shows are terrible, except this award. You know, so I think that uh, it's still a massive part. And I think that the biggest impact, which is ironic now, is, uh, is, is, is the live shows, you know? So when they, when a radio station's, you know, kind enough to take on your show and promote you in a city, it really, it really uh, resonates. And I love doing radio, as you know, as you say, you know, K-Rock, you know, Kevin and Lisa over there, you know, I basically, oh, K-Rock gave me a career. That's how I began my career. And um, I think without their support and their, Kevin's decision to get to get um, behind us, we may not have had any. We may not be on the phone today. Um, so I, I have a special place in my heart for radio, and I will always do stuff for radio. I do. I did all through the pandemic, two hours every morning, speaking to. I'll talk to every radio station. I just love the um, the support and the, the the idea that there's someone's out there playing a record. So. I, I, I enjoy the whole visits to radio stations, doing special songs for them. You know, the, the festivals, the big radio festivals, they were the first things I did. Remember, I remember I began, they were like, hey, so what do you think? Your, your, your hits, your songs are hit at the radio. What do you think about, you're going to play to 40,000 people at, you know, RFK Stadium. I was like, I get off the phone, I was like, I think I just spoke to someone on a lot of drugs because I've never played to someone on more than 1,000 people. What is happening, you know? And so... But I go so way back with, with us, with radio. Some bands don't need radio. You know, like PJ Harvey, it's incredible. She's never really had, I would think, 
uh, the same relationship that the Bush has had with their station, you know, or Sonic Youth, you know, great bands like that. But we seem to be lucky enough to, to have that relationship with uh, you guys in your old life. And, uh, you know, and so my, my love goes so deep for radio stations, you know. Very well said, man. Yes. Gavin, 1997, we went bowling with Bush at, in, uh, at midnight in, in Hollywood. Remember that? Yes, I do. And I, I'm still terrible. I'm still terrible. <laughs> that was a lot of fun, man. I have not improved. It's the one thing I haven't improved. I've probably got worse at it. Gavin, thank you again so much for spending some time with us today. We really no, appreciate it, I'm so it, sorry I was late. Yeah. No, no, no problem. problem. All right, all the best. That was the Boo Crew Podcast episode 148. Special thanks to our guest, Gavin Rossdale. Get Bush's album, The Kingdom, everywhere now. Follow at Gavin Rossdale and at Bush on Instagram. Music for this episode from Bush. Production tracks provided by Power Man 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Moon. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye! A bloody disgusting podcast network, home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full-cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy for disturbing and terrifying creepypastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.